Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Jefferson Mineo, a writer and director who's now following his 2014 drama Big Money, starring Nadia Litz, a friend of the show, with Cosmic Dawn, a sort of metaphysical drama starring Camille Rowe as a young woman who joins a UFO cult in the hopes it'll lead her to understand her mother's disappearance more than a decade earlier, only to find answers more bizarre than she could ever have expected. It arrives in theaters in the U.S. and on VOD platforms across North America this Friday, February 11th. You should take a look. Jefferson picked Brian De Palma's Body Double, the 1984 celebration of voyeurism, murder, and general sexploitation that stars Craig Wasson as Jake Scully, an actor with a busted marriage and a career-derailing case of claustrophobia who's offered a house-sitting gig that leads him to become infatuated with a woman he watches through a telescope. And that leads him, through fairly bloody means, to become obsessed with a porn star named Holly Body, who's played by a young Melanie Griffith. And things get even stranger after that. They also get even bloodier, but of course, that's the Brian De Palma promise. This is someone else's movie. I think it's it's really sleazy. It's really politically incorrect, especially the you know these days. I think it's. I I just imagine when I watch that film, and I, I have this with a lot of De Palma films, not all of them, because I think there's some that are maybe a little bit more serious in mm. terms of De Palma's work. But this one, I just imagine him like cackling behind the camera because I just think it's like it's giddy and ridiculous. And I just, I find it hilarious. Like I'm laughing out loud almost, you know, every, every few minutes in this movie at how preposterous some of this stuff is. And, and just that Craig Wasson is, is in it is also like really strange. I don't really know any other sort of prominent film that he's in. So it's just like a weird casting choice. There's this whole sort of artifice that's going on in the, in the film like from top to bottom, whether that's production design or wardrobe or costume or, or anything, it's just, I, I think it's, it's, it's really funny. And I, and I think a, a, a lot more interesting than, than it's probably, I'm, I'm sure when it came out, it was given credit for, but even to this day, I mean, I, I it's, it's my favorite one of his. Yeah. I have to admit, I have a soft spot for it because I think it was the first of his films that I watched repeatedly. Um, Mm -hmm. because I was 16 when it came out and it was Mm -hmm. on super channel and you could just, you could watch it five times in a day if it was on. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I was lured in by the salacious aspect of it. I I knew who De Palma was and I'm pretty sure I'd already seen Carrie, but VHS was only just starting to be a thing in Toronto Mm -hmm. for rental. And so it was harder to find films. Right. Uh, and he hadn't made anything I could have seen in a theater at the time. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm was, sure those, they must've all been rated R. Like I, oh, yeah. I'm trying to think if he, maybe once he got to the untouchables and stuff like that, but almost every, he's kind of an exclusive R rated director. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, maybe no. Cause hi mom and that would have had uh, language keeping it out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, yeah, it just, it was someone I knew about. I was reading, you know, like Fangori and Starlog and he'd made enough stuff in the genre that I knew who he was. And then I saw this and thought, this is very I mean, it's a Chicago and I, I mm-hmm. had the reference points, but it's so, yeah, as you said, it's gleeful. Like it's mm-hmm. having, he is having so much fun just redoing 
What if you did Rear Window and Vertigo in the same movie and then also found other things to just slap in and then you tried to set it in this world and then you had a Frankie Goes to Hollywood video in the middle of it because why the hell not? Oh, and I know. And, and the and the chorus of that is relax, don't come. And that's like, I mean, it's just so absurd. I just laugh out loud every time, especially in the context of the film. It's hilarious. So it's it's giddy with. Oh, you know what? I'm wrong. I had seen Scarface, but only like a pan and scan video in a video store. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching it late at night, I think before, mm-hmm. or maybe I even brought it home, but that was, I had seen that, but that's the one film that's sort of the outlier in his filmography up to that point. Cause it doesn't have any of his usual tendencies. He's just, he's serving a gangster movie. He's not doing any of the, I mean, he's got his flourishes, but he's not narratively working in the references that he always does in, in things like just to kill or blowout mm-hmm. or, or even carry. Mm-hmm. And this is just so sleazy is exactly the right word but he's reveling in it. There was Mel Brooks uh, yeah. was yelling. Somebody yelled at Mel Brooks about the producers and said it was vulgar. And how, how dare he? And his, his immediate response was it rises below vulgarity. Right. Which is how I feel about this movie too. It's just so joyously running through all this stuff and, and just constantly reminding you that, Oh no, this is the first part of a three picture deal and I can do whatever the hell I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a gigantic troll to me of, of just Hollywood and critics and whatever. He's like, oh, you thought I was a sleazy filmmaker? Let me show you how sleazy I can be. This is going to I'm going to go beyond sleaze on this film to the point that it's almost satire. Um, and I, I mean, that's what I really I, I like about it. I mean, I find little different ridiculous like just after he meets Holly body and then all of a sudden he's got his hair slicked back and he's wearing a leather coat. And he's got a Coke spoon around his neck. It's just yeah. like, what is going on in this movie? What, what I, I, anyway, but I, I, I every time I watch it, it just, it brings me joy, <laughs> which is why I wanted to choose it. Cause I, I was just like, it's just it's sleazy kind of a, <laughs> seems like a throwaway film for him, but um, I, I just love it. Yeah, in a weird way, it feels like his response to Videodrome, where um, he maybe, maybe, or maybe he just saw the trailer and started writing, because it, Mm -hmm. I mean, the two occupy completely different spaces cinematically. They Mm -hmm. they are not in communication with each other, except that they're both about people who make, like, weird protagonists who are already vaguely disreputable, who discover something even worse and Mm -hmm. more um, debauched and are just pulled into it, and Mm -hmm. also fall in love with, um, weirdly enough, with iconic uh, actors rather than yeah. characters within mm-hmm. the, like the casting is part of the deal. He, he'd wanted, uh, I think it was Annette Haven, uh, mm. an actual porn star to play Holly and then realized that either she couldn't act well enough to sell it against mm-hmm. professional actors, or she just read as too old, which is also possible because Melanie Griffith, even though night moves is like 10 years ago, she's still in her twenties and she's still, mm-hmm innocent enough in that way to project the having just watched most of the Disney plus um, Pam and Tommy series, mm-hmm. which is about kind of the first uh, cultural codification of slut shaming, like as a mm-hmm. public act, which is reprehensible and directed at, at Pamela Anderson rather than Tommy Lee, even though they're both in the tape. Having the sex. Point, yeah. It, well, but beyond, <laughs> above and beyond, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's, right. it's public yeah. nudity. It's all the stuff that, that people claim to hate. But really, right. of course, that's what they want in their pornography, which is the point of the, the miniseries. Mm-hmm. But um, having just watched that, I was amazed to see that Holly, other than being a damsel in distress by by um, the direction of the plot, and it's the only place that it, any of these movies could go, mm-hmm. that the hero will have to rescue the girlfriend. 
she's never looked down upon for what she does. And she mm-hmm. like Griffith is so playful in her scenes with, with Watson and refuses to be shamed for the stuff that she does. She actually says like, I'm a performer. This is what I do. Why wouldn't you hire me? I think it's pretty much what she, her argument is. And I was amazed at how weirdly healthy that is. He offers her, that's another hilarious part. He offers her points in the, in the, in the porno that he's, he's going to direct. Yeah. I'll give you points. I'll give you back end points. <laughs> okay. Which is the sleaziest uh, thing. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, I, the other thing too, is that, that Craig was on the, the, like Jake Scully, the character. I mean, he's just, he's, I mean, he's claustrophobic, right? So instead of vertigo, he's, he's claustrophobic, but it's this form of like paralysis. Right. Yep. And this is another thing that De Palma kind of does repeatedly in a lot of his films, probably most famously with uh, the train station scene and untouchables with the baby and the baby carriage, he places characters in these moments of like great peril and tension and they're looking for these lifelines to maybe help. And they, and they look around and it's, it'll be a senior citizen with a walker or a mother with a baby in a carriage. And he's just, and, and in this film, he's just unable to do anything. He just, he becomes frozen with, with, with fear and claustrophobia sort of repeatedly. So in a way he's like, he's this, and, and even, I mean, there's a lot of voyeurism in the, in this film, obviously, but even voyeurism in a, in a way is like this, this form of paralysis, right? He, sure, he yeah. says he's like, I like to watch. He says that it's at some point he likes to watch, but he doesn't like to, he can't really act for a large part of the film because he just becomes frozen with, with fear or where, wherever this is coming from in, in the film. Um, and so in a way it's like the, this male character is like impotent in a way and the women in the, in the film are not right. They're these very sexual beings that that he lusts after, but just does not know how to handle, does not know how to approach, does not know how to help. And in a way, they don't need his help. You know, like Holly certainly, you know, doesn't. And and uh, I can't remember, I can't remember the character's name that 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 gets killed with the crazy drill in her apartment. The woman that he's watching at the beginning, I can't remember that. Gloria Ravel, yeah, Gloria Ravel, of course, yeah. Gloria Ravel is a forgettable name, but Deborah Shelton is an actor who's sort of gotten fallen by the wayside as well. Even though she did great work in pretty much everything she did, she was everywhere for a little window of time in the seventies and eighties, and that sort of speaks to the not the bottom feeder culture of the movie exactly, because that implies that I'm relegating them to that, but the idea that you're not seeing proper movie stars in this film, that that you've mm-hmm. got Wasson and Henry and Shelton and even um, like Dennis Franz, people you vaguely recognize in a story mm-hmm. about Hollywood B and C and D-listers is kind of great too. Like he just made Scarface. He could have hired anybody. And mm-hmm. he chose to go with like a relatively unknown to the mainstream cast or people who would be vaguely familiar. And um and yeah, the uh, the impotence theme is right in line with my favorite type of detective story. My favorite film noirs are the ones like um, uh, Altman's Long Goodbye or the Coen's Big Lebowski, where the direction the film takes is shambling and just sort of flailing around. There's mm-hmm. not an investigation here. He just keeps stumbling into new stuff. Jake, he's not a detective. Like he's mm-hmm. the last person you'd want to save you. No, and he fight. He he track follows her and and spies on her in the change room at at Bellini's the lingerie shop, and then he steals her panties from the garbage can. And oh, like, he's a creep. He's a yeah, full on creep. Yeah, he's a total total creep that doesn't want to admit that he's a creep. You know, 
and is just given this brief, you know, his friend get, takes him to this, this, this house overlooking the, overlooking the, the valley and the city with the, you know, with the telescope and very quickly sort of jumps in with, with both feet, you know, so. Yeah. And, and Greg Henry too is perfectly cast in that because if you want someone who is demonstrably sleazier than Jake Scully, you mm-hmm. cast this guy and it's nothing he does. He's just disreputable. Like he's you just untrustworthy from the moment you see him, which again is De Palma lampshading everything mm-hmm. and daring us to find someone to care about. But because mm-hmm. Jake is a lousy protagonist and nobody else is particularly likable. And then we meet Holly and you just realize, oh, this is what like innocence and star quality look like. Melanie mm-hmm. Griffith is perfect for this. She had that window where she was dead on in everything. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, around something, something wild, and yeah. and all of those films. Yeah, yeah, Cherry Two Thousand, Working Girl. Like she, mm-hmm. it wasn't that she was trying to expand her range. I think that's when things got awkward for her. But mm-hmm. when people cast her for her charisma and her comfort in front of the camera, you get stuff like this. You get Nobody's Fool, mm-hmm. um, which is an incredibly underrated performance. And um, she just, she just nails this. She does everything that's required of her, but makes it. Um, makes it conscious and, and aware in a way that maybe other actors might not have. It, it was really surprising because it's been at least 10 years since I'd seen it. And I just thought this time through, it's like, Oh, I really underrated Griffith. She's great in this. Yeah, she is. She's fantastic. In it. And it's like such a daring role. I mean, just even for, I mean, uh, she's got all this nudity in there, but she's also walking around with like buttless chaps and she's yeah. got all the great, like, all the great lines and comebacks and all that stuff in the film, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, and, and with De Palma, obviously casting her because she's Tippi Hedren's daughter, mm-hmm. uh, there's the extra layer upon the layer, but I also suspect that he treated her better than Hitchcock treated her mom. Um, yeah. Based on all the reports. I don't know. Did he out. ever work with her again? I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of mentally go through Bonfire the filmography Vanities. and see if, see if she, what's that? Bonfire, of the, Bonfire Vanities, of the Vanities, which okay. nobody talks about. I mean, in his filmography or otherwise, it's just been disappeared from yeah. collective memory. And she's not yeah. very good in it either, which is a shame. Well, I mean, the film's not very good. Yeah, nobody knows what to do in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, the intentions are very, very clear. And he is making fun of Hitchcock while also telling a story that stands on its own as this bizarre demimond. Um, it also felt like his answer to cruising this time around. Yeah, which... a little bit. It's like this giant middle finger to critics. I think that's one one part of it. It's probably a middle finger to the studio. I'm sure the reason he couldn't cast, I can't remember the name of the actress you mentioned. The the oh, Annette Haven. Annette Haven. Yeah, I'm sure the studio was like, no, sorry, I know you're making a sleazy film, but you're not casting an actual pornographic actress in 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 a studio film, so you're going to have to look elsewhere. Um, so that might've been the only concession he made. Cause there's not many other ones that he makes on this film. I mean, it's, I, I mean, the scandal that this, this film would have if, if it was released now, just in terms of, of the violence and, and the subject matter. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild to think that he was kind of making films like this repeatedly in the, in the eighties, you know, these really sort of sleazy B movie, but, I mean, to me, I I love him because I love genre films and I love, you know, B movies. And I, I, you know, that's sort of what I gravitate towards. Uh, I gravitate towards that more than, than art films sort of in general. 
Um, just because I think they're more fun. And that's sort of like as a filmmaker, I just like to have fun. You know, life's life's too short to be so self-serious all the time. And Debalm is definitely not self-serious. And I just um the way that he moves his camera and the way that he blocks his scenes. And, and, you know, the one thing I watched this again, because I hadn't seen it in a number of years either. I watched this again this week and very similar, like dress to kill has a lot of this too, with just, you have five, six minute set pieces where there's no, no dialogue, right. It's just people following, watching, whatever. It's like kind of pure cinema in a way. And the the way that he moves his steady cam, the way that he uses the uses the cranes, the way that things are blocked, the way that he sort of has shots within shots with reveals and and all that, I think it's really, I mean, I think the French really appreciate that, but I don't think De Palma ever really got his just due. You know, if you look at all of those, the sort of uh, movie brat guys like. Spielberg and Scorsese and Lucas, all those guys and Coppola and all those guys, all those guys were you won Academy Awards and got critical praise. And I don't know if De Palma ever really did maybe untouchables. That might've been the only, only one that sort of did well commercially and critically. I mean, a lot of his other films were not like that. Maybe, maybe Carrie back in the day. I don't know, but for the most part, he's looked at as, as like a B movie, sort of the sleazy B movie guy. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because, well, and and I was going to say he gets one hit a decade, it seems, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Carrie in the 70s, uh, Scarface and The Untouchables in the 80s, and then Mission Impossible, which, every, again, everybody forgets he made that one, right, because he mm-hmm. kept himself out of it, even though it does have all of his signatures, it has women you can't trust, it has glamorized um, heroes and villains, it has a midsection ripoff of another established thriller sequence, which is done perfectly and also mm-hmm. to suit the material he is, he is shaping it into. But everybody gave, you know, Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner the credit for that. And mm-hmm. it was like he disappeared from it. He's, mm-hmm. um, he's an amazing craftsman, but I think you're right. I think the fact that he tries to tell us how much fun he's having Mm-hmm. is something that works against him critically. And mm-hmm. sometimes it makes it feel like he's showing off. Sometimes his riffs are so derivative that they stop being references and just become copies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about all the Argento lifts in Dress to Kill, but it makes the film work. Like the Dress to Kill works because it's an Argento reference, not because mm-hmm. it's an original work. It wouldn't work if you took out the, the Jello influence the same way uh, this film requires an understanding of the Hitchcock reference points it's touching in order to function because otherwise it makes no sense. I mean, it Mm -hmm. kind of doesn't anyway, but the fun of it is watching the Jimmy Stewart replacement fumble through the stories that we already Mm know. Mm -hmm. And I think also the fact that he is unrepentant about it, that he amps things up in response to criticism of Mm -hmm. excess yeah, um, like the drill murder in this was, I think, pretty much the reason I found out about the movie in the first place because it was uh, might have even been on the cover of Fangoria. It was I, I was a teenager. I was into horror movies, and that was the magazine before the internet that showed you the photographs of the makeup and let you understand what was going on. Well, and it's legitimately shocking too in the film because up to that point, it's all it's just it's Jake Scully sort of watching, spying, you know, doing doing his peeping Tom thing, following her through the mall to the lingerie shop, following her to the beach, you know, checking in through the telescope to see whether or not she's home. And then all of a sudden, there's just this brutally violent murder with a, a big phallic drill 
it's just it, it's it's crazy. His fantasy and the movie are violated by that. Yeah, by that intrusion. Mm-hmm. And even though there's a purpose for it in the plot, it is the kind of thing that takes a while to recover from. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're an audience member, it's it's not like I enjoy it now, but the like the framing of it and the commentary on on the the idea of possession and and how Jake can no longer have this woman because which he's who he's never had because mm-hmm. he's never actually interacted with her. He's only stalked her. I and mean, we're, again, we're asking, we're being tricked by the detective format of the story into empathizing with a stalker, mm-hmm. which I find really fascinating uh, because in 1984, it was, it was a horror movie thing, right? It, it was, mm-hmm. now we talk about it as a, a the stalker next door kind of thing. It's, it's become the stuff of true crime and, and pop culture. But back then it was rarely uh, touched upon unless it was in a context of, a mystery or something like we see here and the violation in the in the violence is really shocking doubly shocking and i can uh, i mean i'm i'm led to understand that people walked out of the theaters when it played in 84 i never saw mm-hmm. it in the theater so i wouldn't i wouldn't know but i i can also imagine people just not being willing to continue giving the film the benefit of the doubt from that point on mm-hmm. and so maybe that's what destabilized it for people because it's part of the movie's aesthetic it's absolutely where that movie is always going and the violence never, I mean, there's more violence in the film, but it never crests the same way it does in that sequence because the powerlessness of Jake and his, his double impotence because of the distance and his inability to do anything is, is much more powerfully felt. I think you really, you really feel the murder, which I think is the sign of a good movie that you're, Mm -hmm. you're regretting the loss of a character we've never really dealt with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and like you were saying, it kind of violates, it violates his fantasy in a way. And I think that's, that's what I find really shocking and really effective about, about that murder because he's witnessing it through a telescope, unable to help. And De Palma does this really kind of clever, very subtle thing at the beginning when he first goes to this house, you see this elevator that takes you up to the house. Yeah up the side of the hill and it's going slowly, 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 slowly. So he does this job of like, it doesn't, even if he wanted to run down there and try to get over there, it's going to take him 20 minutes to go down very slowly in this elevator down the side or this trolley or whatever it is down the side of the hill. And, and, you know, just sort of reinforcing this, this sort of impotence that the character has. He also does a lot of really interesting kind of subtle stuff with the, with the costuming, like, Jake Scully's always dressed in brown. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this very sort of neutral, kind of uninteresting color, you know, where Gloria Ravel is in white, right? Because she's this sort of pristine fantasy. And then and then Holly Body is dressed in black leather. And and he's sort of, you know, in between these two. And even even when he becomes the the sleaze bag with the slicked back hair and the Coke spoon around his neck, he's still wearing brown. He's still got a brown leather jacket on, you know. So yeah. Some people can't not be themselves. Yeah. And other people have no choice but to, like in Holly, it takes what, a good three scenes with her before we really see who she is, even though she's always honest with people, she still maintains a persona. And it isn't until that drops that we really see the person mm-hmm. that he thought he was stalking in the first place. Mm-hmm. And she was, he thought she was someone else and she was, but not the person, sorry. He thought she was someone else, but it wasn't the alter ego that he thought he was dealing with. And it's just mirrors within mirrors and, and, switchbacks and double backs and yeah it's just 
it's more than most movies can handle. And I think had he gone for a more restrained depiction, it wouldn't have helped. Like the whole film is is about excess and and you know, coke culture in, in Hollywood keeps coming up and it's the go-go 80s and everybody's just blitzed out of their minds and no one knows where the future is, but they know that it's day glow and shiny and we're just going to see all of it all the time at once. And yeah, um, it's just, I think he's already, like De Palma, I think is already too old for that shit and just not buying into it. And so the longer he spends with these characters, the less human they become, all the peripheral characters. They're just there to facilitate whatever it is that Jake wants. And he's terrible at getting what he wants. So nobody is effective. And in the well, end, and nothing and nothing is real. Like you were just saying it's it's this sort of hall of mirrors thing where who who is this person truly? And, and he does he does all he reinforces this just through, you know, he'll have stuff where where he's fantasizing that he's kissing Gloria Ravel in the, in the tunnel and the camera spins around and then all of a sudden they're on the beach and then back in the tunnel and they're in her apartment and all of this stuff. So you never really know. There's this like this level of artifice that goes on in this film where you'll have some shots. He'll be driving in the car and it'll be a, a, a real shot of him driving in the car. Other times it'll be rear projection. Yeah. He'll do stuff like where they're on the back lot at the studio and you'll see like palm trees go by and it'll be revealed that it's a screen, not, not real palm trees. And he'll do all of this stuff to sort of keep you always disoriented and asking like, what is real? What is not, you know, are, are all of these things projections of our, our fantasies? You know, is that how we're experiencing I mean, I guess this is this is on a larger scale, right? But is the way that we view the world a projection of of our desires or how we desire the world to be, right? Oh yeah, I mean, to De Palma, it absolutely is. I think. Yeah, and with Jake Scully, he has that, right? He he's 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 an actor, right? So he's always playing somebody else. Who is he? Who really is Jake? You know, is is what he's viewing. Um something that he has always desired or is it something he's never admitted that he desired? It's also interesting that like, you know, at the beginning we were talking about him being impotent and he loses, he's, he's paralyzed inside the coffin as a, as a vampire, right. At the, at the beginning of the film set. Mm -hmm. And then he comes home and finds his wife in bed with another man. Right. And then, you know, like all of these things happen to sort of just take away his power constantly to make him weaker Right. And then, and yeah. he gets to this point where he can't go home because he doesn't own the apartment. His wife owns the apartment. He's out of work. His wife is, is sleeping with another man. He's not even going to a place that he's renting himself. It's given to him by somebody else. Right. And he's just helpless, completely helpless. And then he starts finding some sort of purpose through voyeurism, which is just a really twisted, yeah. you know, my, now I found a purpose now. I don't need to get another acting job. I found my purpose. I like to watch. That's that's who I am. Yeah. And right? that that's... purpose makes him invisible, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it depends on him not being seen, which as an actor, you would think would be anathema to him that he would want nothing more, but he negates himself even further. Like he doesn't have a marriage. He doesn't have a home. He's just, now he's not even a person. He's just this pair of eyes watching. And of course, the whole point of him, I think we can talk about the ending of a 40-year-old movie the whole point of him being set up to do this is so that someone else has an alibi and his own perversions, Jake's obsessions wind up solving this crime and, and exposing the killer. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, which is another just such a twisted De Palma thing, but but that's why I like him. I like him because it's just he's he has no problem. Like I said, I for for me mostly with De Palma, it's just that he's he seems like he's having fun all the time, you know. And and I like that in 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 my movies, you know. Not that I. I, I dislike, I mean, I like all, all types of films, but the stuff that I gravitate towards is the stuff that is, is fun in a way, you know, and it can be fun and meaningful at the same time. I think that's, that's one thing that I kind of learned from the Palma. There's like, there's levels to a lot of stuff that he does, but it's just not apparent because there's so much, he puts so much artifice, but like you really, there's never a point where you're like, the camera's hidden in a De Palma movie. The camera is like a character in the film, right? It's like, almost i can't remember which one of his it is maybe it's blowout it starts with this really elaborate kind of crane and dolly shot looking in in again voyeurism looking in like these dorm rooms and stuff like that and i think it's blowout i i, I might be getting this i might be getting this incorrect that's the movie he's cutting right like it pulls out at the end yeah and it's it goes on for so long that it becomes ridiculous you're like <laughs> And I always imagine he must just be like laughing behind the camera. It's like, oh, you thought I was going to cut here? No, no, no. I'm going to keep going. It's going to keep getting more and more ridiculous the further I go. So I mean, I know he gets criticized for that stuff, but I find it I find it really <laughs> enjoyable as a, as a viewer. Well, it's the box of toys thing, right? Like you can't, the camera can't wait to show us the next thing, even though his Steadicam is legendary for being slow and measured. There's an mm-hmm. excitement to it. Like, where are we going? What are we going to see? It's like, it's like walking a puppy. Mm-hmm. You're just, you're pulled along more than you are in control. Yeah. And just member. Pino Donaggio. He works with Pino Donaggio. It's great. Pino yeah. Donaggio is so over the top and melodramatic and all that. It's just, it's just great stuff. There was something that you said about the levels of reality and how people create realities in order to cope with mm-hmm. things they don't know or that they don't want to know. That obviously makes me think of Cosmic Dawn and, and the, the, final question on the podcast is always the same, which is what is it of, in, in this case, body double, but all of De Palma, I think could apply uh, that you may have borrowed or referenced or outright stolen for your own work. And there's a lot in Cosmic Dawn that sort of feels like it shares a sensibility, not necessarily aesthetically, but intellectually with most of De Palma's thrillers. Intellectually, huh? That's interesting. I, I mean, for me, stylistically, that's a thing. I love working with with Steadicam. I don't really like as a, as a director, just in terms of 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 cinematography. I don't really enjoy doing master cover one, cover two, cover three, cover four. Like the sort of traditional way to shoot a scene. I don't find that really. It's not fun to me. It's not interesting. I think that's. I think maybe if you're if you're a real actor's director, and I think I I consider myself to be, you know, kind of an actor's director because I love working with actors, and I, I think I'm able to, you know, kind of get uh, good performances and stuff like that. But stylistically, it's just not interesting to me. So I would much rather see how many how how can I achieve what I need to achieve as a director within each scene by combining as many camera moves as possible, and that's something that. You know, looking at De Palma, he's just he's a master at doing that. You know, I, I think he's a master at at just sort of take these long, intricate one shots that have probably ten different frame sizes within within the same shot. So I think that's one thing that I find uh, a real influence on me. Intellectually, I'm I'm actually interested. What 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 uh what about it? Because 
I mean, I, I, to me, I think Cosmic Dawn's about belief. It's about this sort of intersection between doubt and belief and trying to find other people. You know, it's about belonging, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, most religions, most cults are kind of like that. And so to me, that's what the film's about. So I'm actually, I'm actually curious to hear your, your point of view. I think it lines up with the De Palma mysteries. I think it, to me, it felt like a film that is just as dogged in its pursuit of what the real is, of what the truth is. The, mm. the, the okay. film itself, rather than the character, like Roe is looking for confirmation that she's mm-hmm. right, but she doesn't know what it is she wants confirmed. But the right. movie does, and the movie is on a, a train track, and we're sort of pulled along by the end of the train. And that feels a lot like the momentum in most of De Palma's movies where Hmm. something like Carrie or Dressed to Kill, where there's this dreamlike state at the very beginning. I mean, both of those films open with kind of exaggerated slow motion, soft focus material. I mean, it's more sexual than the stuff in Cosmic Dawn, but it's the same kind of beginning. Um, And it's reflected in, in Cosmic Dawn in those, in that first 20 minutes or so where Roe is just, She's not dazed exactly, but the movie is circling her as she figures out what happens next. Mm-hmm. And, and we already, I mean, the movie already knows. I didn't know as a viewer, but there's a confidence in the way that this stuff is presented that tells me the movie knows where we're going. We'll get there. And watching sort of Camille Rowe play that and connect to that energy in the second half of the film more when, when I don't want to spoil it for the listeners, but when things mm-hmm. start taking more conceptual leaps and there are, you know, there's a sing-along that should not work. Like that, that should stop the film dead, but it doesn't. <laughs> Good. Well, Good. It's, a high, that, it's, yeah. it's a high wire act to try See, And I was, you know, it's funny that you say that because I, I think another filmmaker that I, I really like is uh, Pedro Almodovar. And because he has this sort of pastiche mm-hmm. approach, he, he, I mean, he has, his is sort of like murderously obsessive characters, right? Like driven by passion to murder and whatever, all this stuff that's kind of, especially his earlier stuff is all sort of like that, but he has this sort of pastiche to a lot of his films where they can go in a different, different way. And I, I, I really dislike movies that are kind of monotone that give me the same tone. And I sort of follow that tone. I find those to be kind of grueling viewing experiences. Mm -hmm. So I need a little exuberance. I need a change of tone, a little change of pace. I need it to go somewhere unexpected. That's always something that I'm kind of, looking to do or that I'm interested in doing. And, and I think that's, you know, that's certainly where the, where the song, the song and dance is what we call it. But yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Uh, have you, you, it hasn't been released yet. So you probably haven't seen parallel mothers yet, but no, it's, it's great. It's truly great. It feels like a pinnacle for him. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. In the way that it does merge his, his usual thing with something else. A couple of other things actually, and um, I, we screened it at Secret Movie Club in December, and I got to see it in I think the end of November. I saw it fairly early and was just blown away by what he pulls off. And Cruz yeah. has never like never been better. Yeah, I'm a couple I'm a couple films behind on him. I, I haven't seen Pain and and Glory yet either, so I'm a couple behind. But actually, I've been watching revisiting his films. I guess this is this is a topic for another somebody else's movie, but that's yeah, fine, you know. But yeah, I was watching watching some of his films. Uh, last week and the week before, I I think De Palma and Nomadovar would get along really, really well. They feel like they have a kinship. There's a there's an understanding. There's a love of color and a love of of excess that 
that really and a love of the filmmaking process i mean i think that's what i like about both of them you you know that there's this sort of sly sense of humor behind the camera at at all times you know that they really love they love style you know they love color they love camera movement all all of that i think i think all motivar maybe works with better better scripts but that's not the palma's thing i mean I, I don't think he really cares so much about that as as he does sort of the the more sort of thematic material, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why his studio work is often seen as disappointing mm -hmm. um, because they care about getting that stuff right. And he's just like, nah, the dialogue will figure itself out. I want to see Tom Cruise jump off a helicopter. Yeah. In interesting, interesting filmmaker. I mean, I think he's, he's able to elevate B movie material to like another level in a way that not many, not many filmmakers can, he can sort of elevate it to high art in a way. And maybe there's just like, he's, he, I mean, maybe that's what it is when he works with really solid material, he's a little more faithful to it. And, and I think maybe, maybe when he takes things more seriously, he's less interesting as a filmmaker. And when he's just kind of fucking around, <laughs> yeah. he produces masterpieces. At least I think to me. so. I think yeah. so. When he's answerable to someone else, you can sort of feel him going, Oh, fine. I guess I'll do that if I have to, but something mm -hmm. like raising Cain, which is just, I mean, it's not a good movie, but it is a great one. I remember, you know what? I remember seeing that this is I, talking about having fun. I remember, I don't know how old I was. I was probably too young to see that movie. Uh, but I remember going with one of my friends to see that movie and we were just howling with laughter in the theater. And that's kind of the experience I have with a lot of his films. You know, it's just like this frothy, exuberant, like silliness sometimes, even though they're brutally violent and very sexual and, you know, yeah, they're still enjoyable. It's the, the good sleaze. Mm -hmm. it's the it's a hit of the good stuff that's that's kind of yeah that's cinema there's this whole twitter movement of god de palma and god hill and all that and you know they're not wrong they are revered figures but i think de palma oh actually i was about to say i think de palma would be uncomfortable with being hailed as a god i think he'd probably be very happy to get mm -hmm. that level of recognition at this point in his career but you know noah bombach made up a documentary about him it's not like he's gone on recognized but yeah there's something better about these things being sleazy movies you find in a cupboard rather than splashed all over the halls of uh, the halls of fame mm -hmm. yeah well i mean you know he's like john carpenter i think john carpenter has, has sort of had a second uh what i don't even know what you call it. it's like just a, a resurgence in, in popularity recently yeah. yeah without making a movie he's suddenly revered as a as an elder statesman which i think is kind of great on Cosmic Dawn, I worked with Alan Howarth, who who was a frequent collaborator of him. And he just he just he told me he's like, yeah, John just doesn't want to get out of bed to go to set at six in the morning. Just, that's really all it is. He's just like, I'm too old to be on set all the time. I'd rather just play music and tour with my son and play in our band and and do whatever. So, oh, yeah. Can't so believe I, it. He shows up in a Dave Grohl movie. Uh, oh, really? this, this Foo Fighters horror film called Studio 666. He composed the title song with, with his son and also oh. shows up as a recording engineer. I think I'm allowed to say that the movie's technically embargoed, but oh. it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, of course. You know, like, why wouldn't you? If you're Dave Grohl and you're making a horror movie, of course you're going to just tap him for a couple of days to play. Mm -hmm. But he, I mean, he's another guy that I, I really love. And I, I guess maybe it's just I, I, I am drawn or attracted more to the sort of B movie elevated to high art type of 
type of stuff, you know, because he's he's similar in the way they're completely different filmmakers. Yeah. I mean, Carpenter is not sexual in any way, shape or form, uh, but uh, definitely in the same sort of uh, 80s B-movie classic category, you know? Yeah. And they're just fun to watch, both mm-hmm. both of their films. Like both of those directors are people that I just enjoy checking in with no matter what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, if he's retired, I hope he's enjoying himself. I mean, De Palma, I mean, I, I'm assuming he's going to just pop something else out at us at any minute, like a remake of a German uh, slasher film that no one's heard of mm-hmm. or some other comedy that, again, we were unprepared for. But yeah, I'm always happy to see him. Mm-hmm. He used to be a TIFF every year. He would just sit around the varsity drinking coffee. Um, yeah, I've seen I've seen him around TIFF a couple of times, too. Just wandering around. Yeah. Yeah, I remember him bemoaning the, that the films were not operatic anymore at one point. I don't know if that was at a talk he gave or something, but he was talking about how this sort of heightened emotion, melodrama, everything is sort of downplayed these days where, you know, where is the big symphonic score and the exuberant camera movement and the, you know. He's not wrong. Yeah. My thanks to Jefferson Mineo whose new film Cosmic Dawn arrives in theaters in the U.S. and on VOD platforms across North America this Friday, February 11th. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. Jefferson doesn't really keep up with Twitter, but you can follow his movie at Cosmic Dawn Film, all one word, and you can find Body Double on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on the CTV app in Canada. Yes, I know that's weird. And available to rent or buy on VOD. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday and write far too many words about movies and television, this week, the Oscars. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.